The following is brought to you by TheKnowledge.com, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast for April 18th, 2021. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. As you might imagine, there was only one story in politics, and that is the fiasco happening in Afghanistan. As I am recording this right now, right before I came into the booth in our studios here in Austin, Texas, coming across my Twitter feed is a, and and you want to know what? I'm actually going to try and find it. I'm actually going to try and find it because I, I, I don't want to misread the horror <laughs> that I saw. Like this is, a, a, you know, just a very post internet form letter era, post, uh, uh, you know, email forms. That, that this is an auto-generated email. So let, imagine this. You are an American citizen in Kabul, Afghanistan. You have now seen the Taliban come into the city of Kabul and seize it. You have uh, watched the president of the United States, Joe Biden, defend his uh, plan on how he was going to uh, remove people and and exactly what he did, despite the fact that it has been very discouraged. We're we're by the way going to go over his statement and and I'll give my my thoughts on it. But you request through your government to be extracted from Kabul. Number one, I I would uh, I would wonder well why 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 wasn't this a thing earlier? Like could I have gotten a. a was I not subscribed to the right email on on the like if everything's going to hell, here's where I need to go? So you 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 go through the proper channels and you get back this email, which I'm assuming is legitimate. All right. If I if I got fooled by the internet, then then I'll get fooled by the internet and I'll apologize for it on, on Friday's show. Two American citizens reads this email. Thank you for registering your request to be evacuated from Afghanistan, which already sounds like it sounds like movie phone. Dear American citizens, thank you for registering your request to be af- <laughs> to be evacuated from Afghanistan. All right, I'm going to I'm going to keep reading here. The U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan has confirmed that an undefined number of U.S. government-provided flights will begin soon. An undefined number of U.S. government-provided flights will begin soon. So already we're hedging. We're not saying that there will be two flights a day. We're not saying there'll be three flights a day. We're not saying that at least there will be one flight a day. We are saying that an undefined number of flights. Which already, if I'm in Kabul 
I'm like, oh, oh, wait, wait, it, it kind of sounds here like you're like you're hedging. Like, like you're just using language that like, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I like it. It then continues. This is in uh, a bold italicized font. Please make your way to Hamid Karzai International Airport at this time. Okay, good. I like that. All right. All right. Tell me where to go. There are flights. They're undefined, but that's fine. Here's where, I mean, I don't even know what to say to this. Capital letters, bolded. Please be advised that the United States government cannot guarantee your security as you make this trip. <laughs> what is going on? What is going on? Why does this have the same disclaimer as renting a jet ski? That's what I want to know. Why does this, the evacuation of American citizens from Kabul, Afghanistan, have the same waiver language as when I rent a jet ski after drinking two beers in Jamaica? That's what I want to know. Ugh. Anyway, we will talk more about Afghanistan. We are also going to talk about uh, the state of the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There is a very interesting tete-a-tete, a staring match. Indeed, a bit of a Mexican standoff between Nancy Pelosi, the House moderates, and the House progressives. We will also be joined by your friend, my friend, the world's friend, our tech correspondent, our chief tech analyst, really. and our chief UK correspondent, Tom Merritt. We're going to talk all about that bipartisan infrastructure bill, specifically some of the tech language in it, including broadband and some possible new changes to how you are going to be taxed for your cryptocurrency gains. All that. But first. Joe Biden gave a speech to the nation on Monday. This after one of the fastest foreign policy unravelings I have ever seen in my life. After expectations were set by Joe Biden himself saying things like what will happen in Afghanistan will not be Saigon, that the likelihood that the Taliban would overrun the entire country is very, very, very unlikely. The fact that Anthony Blinken, the secretary of state himself, a Blinken said that this would not devolve from a metaphorical Friday to a Monday, only for it to devolve in a literal Friday to a Monday as the Taliban stormed Kabul and indeed took the city, chasing the United States, the mighty, mighty United States with its tail between its legs so they could reestablish a core diplomatic force at the airport next to the Anti-Ans. Biden came out and gave his speech. Here was the first thing that stuck out to me. 
Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital national interest in Afghanistan remains today what it has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on America's homeland. So the plan was never nation-building. Never. Never? For real? We didn't have a culture in this country politically of saying that the reason why we were in Afghanistan was because of nation building. We never talked about the rights of women and girls in Afghanistan. We never talked about free and open elections. We never talked about the, the, the uh, backwards theocratic nature of, of, of the Taliban and how much we hoped that generations and generations of Afghanis would look back at the United States' intervention and thank them. No, never, never. Oh, okay. Because I kind of felt like I remember that they did it for a while. I do. I kind of feel like that. You know, I... I all right, we're going to get into me. I... This is me kind of analyzing the entire Afghanistan situation. Let's go back to 2008, all right? This is when Joe Biden was running as the vice presidential candidate alongside Barack Obama. Here he is arguing in his debate with Sarah Palin that we need to be putting more money into nation building in Afghanistan instead of simply using an Iraq-inspired military surge. Pay attention to how much he's talking about how much more money needs to go into nation building in Afghanistan that a surge, the surge principles used in Iraq will not, well, let me say this again now. Our commanding general in Afghanistan said, the surge principle of Iraq will not work in Afghanistan. Not Joe Biden, our commanding general in Afghanistan. He said, we need more troops, we need government building, we need to spend more money on the infrastructure in Afghanistan. Look. We have spent more money, we spend more money in three weeks on combat in Iraq than we spent on the entirety of the last seven years that we have been in Afghanistan building that country. Let me say it again. Three weeks in Iraq, seven years, seven years or six and a half years in Afghanistan. Hey, Taliban fun fact. Did you know that the Taliban was founded in the same month that Friends debuted on NBC? September of 1994. Hmm? Big comeback years for both of them. All right, let's let's take a broader look at Afghanistan as it as it is. Okay, full confession: I have no idea what I am talking about in terms of expertise with Afghanistan. But then again, that apparently qualifies me to make all the final decisions of the United States government based on what's happened over the last 72 hours. So let's roll the dice. I believe that after 9-11, Ralph Nader would have invaded Afghanistan. Okay, so anybody who's like, oh, George W. Bush started the war. Look, Al Gore would have would have would have went into Afghanistan after 9-11. You can't have that level of a terrorist attack and the person who perpetrated it in a country and us spend the amount of money that we spend on a military. Someone's going to catch these hands after 9-11. Okay, so Going to Afghanistan, I think, is the least controversial element of it. Here's the problem. We couldn't find bin Laden. So imagine a what-if scenario 
wherein we went right into Afghanistan. We had the right intel. We went right into Osama bin Laden's compound. We put him full of holes. We take his body back. We throw it out in the sea like we wound up doing later. I do believe we would have been out of Afghanistan. I don't think we necessarily would have stayed. Or at least I think it would be more likely that we would have left. But that didn't happen. Not only could we not find bin Laden, we couldn't find the guy who was in charge of hiding him. And that person's name is, okay, a little test for everybody, a little turn-of-the-century trivia, leader of the Taliban after 9-11 was Mullah Mohammed Omar. Now, for whatever reason, I actually thought that the United States military had killed Mullah Omar early on in that conflict. I remember something about a, a missile hitting a convoy or his home or something. I thought he was dead. Turns out I did some research. He didn't die until 2013 from tuberculosis. So not only did we not get bin Laden for 10 years, we didn't get Omar at all. He outlived bin Laden based on all the reports. So once you're somewhere for 10 years, and you've made it a point that your only real worth is to be chasing off the Taliban. Well, we just kind of hung out. The focus became about nation building, no matter what anybody tells you, to remold a country like Afghanistan with the hope that if it were a thriving democracy with economic ties to a big superpower like the U.S., that it would be less likely to create terrorists. This was the very neoconservative idea that really permeated through the Bush, Pentagon, and State Department. Of course, we now understand that remaking Afghanistan is kind of impossible. But 20 years later, it's hard to extricate yourself, even after Omar and bin Laden were dead. So let's flash forward to the last five years. The tide turns on public opinion. And as it results to Afghanistan, we've been there long enough and it's time to come home. Couple that with an outsider GOP president in Trump who consistently criticized his Pentagon and the wheels seem to be greased to finally leave the region. Now, Trump really, 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 really wanted to get out of Afghanistan. It's a crown jewel of his conservative Republican philosophy, which differentiates him not only from the left, you only talk about peace and I do it, but also the right. You start wars, I end them. His negotiation strategy was to sideline the Afghan government and negotiate directly with the Taliban. Much was made about a possible culmination of a deal at a Camp David meeting, but according to the New York Times reporting at the time, it was derailed by a suicide bomb that killed an American. That scared, well, even Donald Trump away from the table. Also, I think that the Camp David thing is a little blown out of proportion because according to the contemporary reporting, the Taliban never really even agreed to do it. Not because they didn't want a deal with the U.S. They did want to deal with the U.S., but because the Afghan government was also going to be there and the Taliban doesn't recognize the Afghan government. But an agreement was eventually reached between the Trump White House and the Taliban, just not in Big Camp David fashion. 
And this is the agreement that Biden inherited, something that he is very quick to bring up in his speech last night. When I came into office, I inherited a deal that President Trump negotiated with the Taliban. Under his agreement, U.S. forces would be out of Afghanistan by May 1, 2021, just a little over three months after I took office. U.S. forces had already drawn down during the Trump administration from roughly 15,500 American forces to 2,500 troops in country. And the Taliban was at its strongest militarily since 2001. The choice I had to make as your president was either to follow through on that agreement or be prepared to go back to fighting the Taliban in the middle of the spring fighting season. There would have been no ceasefire after May 1. There was no agreement protecting our forces after May 1. There was no status quo of stability without American casualties after May 1. There was only a cold reality of either following through on the agreement to withdraw our forces or escalating the conflict and sending thousands more American troops back into combat in Afghanistan, lurching into the third decade of conflict. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. forces. So those were the two choices. Either withdraw by May 1st or deploy more troops and stay fighting in Afghanistan for quite possibly another five years. I mean, cool, all right, if those are our two choices, then I only have one question. Why is it August? We blew by the May 1st deadline. We didn't have to send thousands more troops in until we bungled the exit so hard that we were forced to send 6,000. So Biden didn't follow through on the May 1st deadline or deploy more troops. This is a more fluid situation than he made it out to be on Monday. And it was one that he was very confident in a month ago. Here is Biden in July discussing the pullout. Your own intelligence community has assessed that the Afghan government will likely collapse. That is not true. They did not, they didn't, did not reach that conclusion. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. Not quite so dire, huh? But to be totally honest, and as you can tell, I was not a gigantic fan of this statement last night. This was the most galling moment for me. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars 
We trained and equipped an Afghan military force of some 300,000 strong, incredibly well-equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their Air Force, something the Taliban doesn't have. Taliban does not have an Air Force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. We could not provide them was the will to fight for that future. Again, I don't know anything about Afghanistan, but this to me seems particularly awful. The Afghan government was propped up by us, the U.S., If it couldn't stand after we left, then it's our fault for not doing it right, period. To blame a lack of will? A lack of will by the Afghan military? That's putrid. Let me tell you why. Estimates put the loss of life for the Afghan military at 69,000 lives. 69,000 lives. The American loss of life in the mid 2000s. Here is U.S. Amy vet Matt Zeller on MSNBC making this point even more clear. And the idea that the Afghan military should be blamed for this. Do you know how many casualties the Afghan military took in an average year? More than the United States did in 20. When you're not getting paid on a regular basis, when you're not getting fuel, when no one is supplying you with ammunition, and yet you're still showing up to the fight, how dare us for having to blame these people for not having the audacity to be able to survive a Taliban onslaught? No, no, no. And here's the other thing that drives me up a wall. It's not like Biden is above trashing this exact kind of move. Here's a quote of him criticizing Donald Trump for removing U.S. troops from northern Syria. This led to Turkey reinvading the region at the expense of our allies, the Kurds, on October of 2019. Quote, those brave Kurdish and Arab forces paid a steep price. Defeating ISIS in the caliphate, they lost over 10,000 soldiers. Hear me? 10,000. 10,000 dead. They made the ultimate sacrifice and then Trump sold them out. End quote. You can say a lot of awful things about Turkey, and I, I can say a lot of them myself, but they're not the Taliban. You can grieve for 10,000 dead. You can spend a lot of time mourning them, but they aren't damn near 70,000 dead. And yet, and yet, all of this is missing the point. America, up until recently, was behind the pullout. There's now new polls saying that people were out, uh, not for the pullout, but we'll, we'll, we'll wait to see that shake out in a couple months. It was time to come home. Biden is 100% right in that. But what he totally avoided, and through smoke bomb after smoke bomb, be it Trump or the Afghan government or the Afghan military, is that the disaster was the handling of the withdrawal. It's the lack of foresight into what might happen. Now, hopefully at some point we can have somebody who can help explain some of the timing issues with this, but it sounds like a credible critique to say that 
August was the worst time of year to remove our forces, that the spring and summer are when the Taliban is at its strongest and that quite possibly removing our forces and our equipment in the winter would have been a better move. Face facts. Biden screwed up. Here is Norbert Rotgen, chairman of the German Parliament's Foreign Relations Committee. Quote, I say this with a heavy heart and with horror over what is happening, but the early withdrawal was a serious and far-reaching miscalculation by the current administration. This does fundamental damage to the political and moral credibility of the West. End quote. Doesn't that seem like the kind of quote that got passed around and around and around and around and around and around two years ago, three years ago? I, I said this on the Sunday, Sunday, Sunday show, but to be honest, watching all the chaos that has happened is kind of the stuff that I expected during Trump. I expected there to be America first. Who cares about our allies? We just want to get our boys home and leave a gigantic gaping chaos void. I expected that during Trump. And try as he might to shift the blame, Joe Biden did something that Donald Trump could never do for himself. Make Trump look competent on foreign policy. Because for all the glowering photos and knives out anonymous quotes of the foreign press offices, at least Trump didn't preside over this debacle. Guys, August is a no good, very bad month for old Joe Biden. Not only does he have this Afghanistan thing that is dominating front pages around the globe, we also have a crisis on our southern border as record number of migrants continue to pass through that. We are now going to be holding at Fort Bliss in Texas both southern migrant refugees and Afghani refugees. Think about that fun little sitcom opportunity. But also, he's got inflation on the economic front and... Just when he needs a win, his own party is playing defense against it. Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is blocking bipartisan infrastructure to appeal progressives, to appeal to progressives. The reason why is because the progressives don't want to decouple the $1 trillion infrastructure package from the $3.5 trillion infrastructure package that they believe should be passed at the same time. And so they want the Senate to pass the $3.5 trillion infrastructure package or negotiate it to wherever it's going to get, send it to the House, and then and only then will the progressives vote for both of them. Well, as of Monday, the moderates fought back. They say that they will not vote for the budget framework, which we're going to get a little technical here. The reconciliation vote that they need for the $3.5 trillion can't happen until there is a budget framework that was passed by the Senate, despite the fact that there were a couple of votes in there that voted for the framework that said that they will not vote for a $3.5 trillion bill, blah, 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 blah. It goes to the House, and now the Senate can't even begin debating, let alone vote on a a soft infrastructure bill through reconciliation if the House doesn't advance it. And the moderates are saying, well, how about we don't? 
How about, Nancy, you put that bipartisan infrastructure bill up for a vote and we're going to vote on it? Now, you might be thinking, well, the progressives are going to sit it out. The moderates have an answer to that. By their count, there are enough GOP votes to overcome the progressives, but they won't stay around for long. If this bill is coupled to the $3.5 trillion bill, or if it is unnecessarily delayed, say the House moderate Democrats, those GOP votes will fritter off into the wind. Like I said before, though, and it should be clear based on the, the first segment, Joe Biden needs a win, and he needs a win bad. As of now, Nancy Pelosi isn't blinking. She says it's not time for amateur hour by the moderates and believes that the moderates don't have the balls to actually vote no on this budget. But should she press them and be wrong, this is now a total, total, total poop show, completely staffed and orchestrated by the Democrats. They are two parties at war right now. And Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are doing their best to juggle both of their interests. History tells us that the moderates will buckle like a belt. But what if they don't? They say they have the momentum. They say all they want is a chance to vote on this bill. The progressives, of course, believe that as soon as the moderates vote on the $1 trillion bill, any appetite they might have had for the $3.5 trillion bill will almost instantly go away. That might be right, but they might be forced to play that game if the moderates hold strong. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for supporting this show. Um, all right, we're going to get a little real here. Um, this has been personally um, a rough couple weeks. I, uh, when I was on the road in the in the badlands, the wild rural areas of, of Texas, I was there to help with a friend who's, um, you know, just suffered a, a very, very, very close loss and uh, she needed some help. I had the ability to be there. I had the ability to do this podcast from wherever. And I have that because of you. This podcast exists because of you, but my ability to do it wherever I want and to really to have a job where I can pick up stakes and then go take care of the people that I love um, is provided by you. You know, that's, that's, that's a gift that I don't know can ever be repaid. And the hits have just kind of kept on coming for whatever reason I am swimming uh, up to my nipples in uh, death, injury, and disease. <laughs> I, you know, when it rains, it pours. I've had two or three friends come through and and with uh, diagnoses and you know, various ailments, broken faces, and 
hard, um, hard diagnoses. I'm able to do it because you guys give me the freedom. I'm able to be with my friends. I'm able to offer them support because you guys support me. So a lot of this is based on incentive stuffs. And yes, you can go to takepoliticsseriously.com and you can get our bonus content if you sign up at the $3 level or the $10 level. But let me just let you know that your support of me does have the trickle-down effect of me being able to support people that are in... I mean, geez. For God's sakes, I hope it's their darkest hour. Because uh, if there's anything darker, then, then I can't imagine. But you guys have allowed me to be there. You guys have allowed me to to help and fill in and, and be there for them. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, again, takepoliticsseriously.com. Amongst that $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill is a lot of technology investment and also some pipelines to revenue in the cryptocurrency world. Here to discuss all of it is the head of the Daily Tech News Show, Tom Merritt. Welcome back to the show, Tom. Well, thanks for having me back. Now, we don't know whether or not this bipartisan infrastructure deal will get passed in the House. Uh, we, we would presume that it will. But uh, when and if it does become the law of the land, the trillion dollars that is in it will include not just things for bridges and tunnels, but one of the things that was actually uh, seemingly now become canon on safe hard infrastructure in this go-round was broadband. So at the very least, tech is taking more of a, a step forward in terms of what uh, you know both parties believe should be provided by the government. Is there anything in this deal tech-wise that is bigger money-wise than a commitment to broadband? Uh, tech wise, no, unless you count cryptocurrency, which brings in money, oh. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's going the other direction. They want to apply a tax, but yeah, as far as the spending goes, uh, 65 billion for broadband from what I could tell is the biggest tech related thing or, or specifically only tech related thing that I've, uh, that I've noticed. Now, when, when, when it comes to what is in there for for broadband, uh, uh, this is just a, a a blanket commitment that we're going to figure out how to go forward on. Um, yeah, so there's expansions of of existing plans, uh, making permanent temporary plans. Essentially, uh, the major portions of this are forty two and a half billion for what's called broadband equity access and deployment. That's building out underserved areas. Uh, that is something that has been ongoing in the past. There have been programs for it. This is kind of accelerating it, adding a, a, a lot more money to that. Then there's $14 well, billion. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Before, oh, yeah, yeah, before go we go ahead. any further than that, so does that mean that the government is building this out and then they lease it to a private company or they're no, giving money no. for local people <laughs> yeah, to do uh, it? As, as I understand it, it's, it's a subsidy to the ISPs saying, gotcha. hey- you bring broadband, our current definition uh, being 100 megabits per second, you bring broadband to an area that's underserved, uh, we'll help foot the bill. 
Gotcha. So, so usually what we hear in these cases is, you know, we'd like to bring internet out there. It's just too expensive. And and if you're a business, then it's like, well, we will bring broadband to your, to your office, but you have to pay for us to run the line. And so now this is effectively the government saying, Hey, we'll pay you to run the line. Just make sure that it runs out to these kinds of places. Yeah. And, and the controversies and arguments around this are about the definitions employed. How you, how do you make something uh, qualify as underserved? How do you make sure the ISPs actually spend the money on building out infrastructure to the underserved and not just suburban areas that already kind of had service and they're just expanding it, like actually bringing it to rural areas and all of that. Uh, devil's in the details on that. That's the biggest chunk of the 65 billion right there. Okay, and so uh, uh, you were you were you were going on to something else before I interrupted you. Yeah, the the other large chunk is fourteen billion dollars for emergency broadband benefit fund, uh, which was a pandemic era plan uh, put under in under the Trump administration. That is going to be renamed the Affordable Connectivity Fund. Uh, the subsidy is going to be brought down from fifty dollars a month to thirty dollars a month. Uh, but it's going to continue uh, rather than going away. Even if COVID magically disappears, you'll you'll keep having this for qualifying low-income families. Okay, so this is a, a a a way for people who might not be able to pay for broadband to get it. Yeah, this is. Uh, I don't think I could afford broadband. I got kids in school. Uh, I'll be able to get, we've had plans like this for telephone service for a long time. Okay. Uh, this is a way to, to say like, Oh, internet kind of a necessity in the modern age. Uh, if you can't pay for it, let's help you pay for it. Uh, the negatives on this are often when you provide a subsidy, that means it makes internet more uh, expensive, uh, because you're propping up the, the bottom price. Uh, if you don't provide a subsidy though, you have a lot of people who can't afford to get it. So it's always trying to balance. Like we don't want to encourage the ISPs to keep the prices high. Uh, on the other hand, we want to make sure we, we get these underserved people uh, a subsidy. So it's, it's essentially a credit for them. It's a subsidy for the user, but the, the deployment that we talked about first, the 42.5 billion, that's a subsidy for the ISPs to build service. The 14 billion here is a subsidy for consumers to use it. Now you've watched these programs come and go over the years in 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 covering things for your various tech ventures. How effective are they? How how effective are are are, are they in terms of actually building these things that we're paying for? Yeah, I'd be a regular on uh, all of the talk shows if I if I really had a good answer to that. Uh, it's it doesn't appear to me to be intensely effective, but it's not ineffective. Uh, there are definitely people who have been able to access uh, internet that couldn't have otherwise. There are definitely areas uh, that have gotten internet access uh, that wouldn't have. My impression on this is that the deployment is the less effective one. Uh, that it, it the ISPs generally figure out a way to use this money and roll out the least amount of infrastructure from it. Yes. Uh, uh, and so there, you know, I, I have actually, uh, I talked with Andrew Heaton on political orphanage about some other ways you could maybe encourage development, but, but that seems to usually be the least effective of these plans. The subsidies, you know, arguably may not, may not really ease the problem, may, may not solve the long-term problem, uh, but at least do provide some access to people that wouldn't get it otherwise. And when they go away or they get lowered, uh, people do lose access. 
Now, we haven't seen a major infrastructure bill like this in in many, many uh, years and and administrations even. We have seen other internet bills. Are are you surprised as somebody who's watched this space that this became a part of infrastructure or things like the year we just went through where – you know, uh, school boards were were just assuming that you would be able to get your kids on a Zoom call. Are, are those things that uh, you know put this, you know, uh, on on the fast track? Yeah, th- this seems pretty unsurprising to me. Uh, in in the past, these kinds of plans have been fairly bipartisan. The arguments was always uh, were always around how much. Uh, you know, one one side wanted 50 billion and the other 30 billion, but everybody agreed that there was at least some necessity to it uh, with, with some arguments on 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 the edges for sure. Uh, broadband, I think, has come into its own long before this year. And, yeah. and certainly the pandemic put a big, bright spotlight on it. Uh, so the idea of broadband being in an infrastructure bill seems uh, finally to be uniquely uncontroversially broad uh, infrastructure. Yeah, it is. It is kind of. Uh, I was. I was certainly glad to see it. That if, if the if the gigantic money bomb is is falling out of the sky, I'm glad for it to kind of hit more of the internet stuff. Although there's <sighs> even a billion dollars in here for what's called the middle mile, which is undersea cables, back end infrastructure, uh, and that's the kind of thing that's going to impact everybody. That's that's the bridges and tunnels of the internet right there. Yeah. Uh, so you know, I mean, it's not a lot, a billion dollars, but you know, that's that's something where the U.S. is is actually getting ahead of things and saying, let's help uh, bolster a, a strong infrastructure, not wait for it to crumble. So that, that, that is what, uh, that, that's what we got for the infrastructure. Is there, or sorry for the broadband element of this, was there any other tech stuff there? Or was it mostly broadband before we get into the cryptocurrency, of course? Yeah, there's two others uh, that are, that are not crypto. Uh, one is seven and a half billion for uh, putting in a half million electric vehicle charging stations. Uh, a drop in the bucket, honestly. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. This is not going to build a robust system on its own. I think the argument for it has been that it will spark uh, an interconnected open system. Uh, and one effect it seems to have had is that Tesla just happened to have announced that its charging stations will open to other vehicles later this year, just in time to make it eligible to get a little of that seven and a half billion dollars. Uh, so maybe uh, it is having an effect okay. in, in, taking the infrastructure that's there and making it easier for everybody to access. And there's also $5 million a year for the Department of Transportation to pilot a research program for autonomous vehicles. That's, to me, administrative stuff. That's We have a lot of electronic uh, autonomous vehicle research projects underway. We want to make sure that we're managing those well and and everybody's talking and the safety is we're on top of that and, and we don't let things slip through the cracks because autonomous vehicles you know, they may be happening slower than a lot of people want them to, but they're definitely happening. All right. R- real quick on the charging station. So this, again, is a subsidy to people that would already be building charging stations, be they like Tesla connected to vehicles that are being sold or just somebody who wants to build their own, you know, a brand or chain of electric chargers. Yeah, and I haven't dug in uh, enough to understand all the restrictions on this, but as I understand it, it's money to build charging stations. Let's expand the network. Okay, so you can apply and get money that would subsidize you building out your network. And and so that's why Tesla is like, oh, so all we have to do is just say everybody's welcome and we can uh, get in on uh, you yeah. know the, this, this sweet money uh, stream? Okay, congratulations. Ali Ali Oxenfree. 
I'll take some of that. Thank you very much. The, the other thing that they're spending money on, I, I think, is probably the least controversial of the tech items here, uh, even though broadband is fairly uncontroversial, cybersecurity. Uh, it's very little uh, as a percentage, $2 billion going to cybersecurity, a billion of that to reinforce state and local government security, which is sorely needed, uh, things like training programs and, and upgrading infrastructure. Uh, some some money for uh, looking at the electric grid and and shoring its security up. Uh, some research and development at the Department of Homeland Security and uh, the CISA, uh, the Cyber uh, Security Infrastructure, the Cyber Infrastructure and Security Agency's operational budget. Uh, and CISA sort of universally lauded as doing a, a a really good job in the face of really challenging times with the hacks on the Colonial Pipeline, solar winds, uh, et cetera. Uh, so that's that's a small amount of money, probably not enough money if there's any controversy there for something that's become incredibly important. Yeah, you would almost think that this is probably its own bill waiting to happen too. <laughs> like yeah. I guess the, the only thing that would not make that happen is the fact that there's not going to be a whole ton of lobbyists that would be, that would push for it much in the way that they would push for, let's say subsidies to bring broadband out to rural areas. But like, I, I, I do think that this is necessary. And, and it is also important to point out if somebody's like, wait a minute, cybersecurity, that's all that it makes. That doesn't in- include all the money that goes to our, Three letter agencies that that yeah, this engage is in that kind of stuff. Yeah, this, on this top is security of the already money. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There is a <laughs> there's lot a lot of money, of money already yeah. in there. Uh, that's a really good, interesting point. I hadn't thought of. Uh, it would probably be pretty easy to get a bipartisan bill on cybersecurity, uh, especially after the next attack comes around. So yes. why waste all your political capital shoving a lot of it into the infrastructure bill? Now let's get into this cryptocurrency thing mm-hmm. because. It is a part of our financial lives. Uh, The meme stocks a few months ago uh, made their way. They were so impactful that deep effing value, R slash deep effing value was called before (laughs) Congress. This is something that uh, seems to have the attention of Washington, D.C. And of course, when that's the case, it means... Where can I wet my beak? So exactly how much can the crypto traders listening expect to pay in taxes going forward? Yeah, uh, this is one of those shocking stories where I was reading all the coverage on it and getting the quotes from from uh, representatives and senators and going, wow, they really seem to understand this issue. And then Justin pointed out because it's money (laughs) like, oh, right. Their favorite topic. Uh, The IRS thinks that because there are no actual rules like standard rules for cryptocurrency profit reporting. Uh, you, you, you don't have, like you have when you're paid by your company, your company has to report, I paid this person that much. So if that person tries to get away without filing that in their taxes, the IRS can catch it. There's nothing like that for cryptocurrency sales. Uh, so they want to plug that hole. And the IRS thinks that if they plug that hole, if they know from the brokers like Coinbase, uh, who's selling cryptocurrency and how much they've made on it, uh, that they'll be able to add another $28 billion to the tax rolls. Now, that is uncomfortable for people who trade in cryptocurrency, but also the attitude seems to me to be like, well, it was a long time coming. We couldn't avoid it forever. Okay. Nobody's terribly upset about the brokers having to report this. It's fairly easy for the brokers to report it. They have all the information. They're they're usually uh, big organizations with with departments that, that can add this. They don't love adding it, but they can. The problem is the wording of the bill seems to apply very widely. 
and so a lot of people, including uh, representatives and senators, have tried to put an amendment to narrow it, to say this shouldn't apply to the guy developing a wallet app uh, who's not actually handling your money. They, that person shouldn't yeah. report because that person doesn't have anything to report. The whole idea with cryptocurrency wallets is they're private and only the person using the wallet knows where their money uh, is coming and going from, not the person who made the software. Uh, also, miners, people who do mining, uh, they spend money to mine that coin uh, and they don't they don't transfer money back and forth. And so people are saying, well, you you could you could disincentivize people to make software and mine coins if you don't leave them out of that. And, and everybody agrees that it probably shouldn't apply to them. But there's a lot of resistance to amending that because they don't want to narrow it so far that they leave somebody else out. Uh, so it's going to be left up unless the House modifies the amendment as the Senate passed it, it's going to be left out up to the IRS to define it. Uh, Bloomberg has a source at Treasury who says that they expect it to be a narrow definition that specifically excludes developers and miners. Uh, but that is leaving a lot of people uncomfortable. Like even if the IRS writes it and everybody agrees that the rule is written well, that rule can be rewritten because it's not in the actual law. So this isn't necessarily a new tax. You are still paying the taxes that you would have otherwise on whatever gains you've made in crypto. What this does is give the IRS the same kind of tool that they would have for stocks. Exactly. Or or income or anything else. Or your paycheck. Uh, this is a tax yeah, you're what, already whatever. supposed yeah. to be paying. This this is the, the aim of the rule is to get the IRS the information to make sure they're collecting all the tax they're supposed to be getting. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I think that 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 seems reasonable, right? Like that doesn't actually seem all that uh, that crazy. It's not like yeah, there's, and, there's 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 a, sure a gigantic I'm new tax. Upset, but but yeah, the 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 controversy around it seems to be around the wording of you know, if I write an app, uh, which is actually fairly simple to do. If I write a wallet app and put it up uh, on the Google Play Store and it gets wildly popular. This law as written could seem to apply to me that now I have to report things, things that I might not even have yeah. uh, or, or could report. And, and that's that's what got everybody upset because they're like, well, that could be a break on innovation because people will look at this and say, I don't know if I want to get in that murky water. I'll just, you know, go write some other kind of app. Is there anything tech wise that you looked at in 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 reviewing the this bill and, and said, well, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. No, nothing like that. Uh, nothing ridiculous or stupid. Certainly things that I, you know, a lot of that broadband stuff, I'm like, I don't know that this is really going to solve the broadband gap. Uh, and, and it's certainly not the best way to solve the broadband gap, but I, I'm so used to that being my reaction to any kind of legislation uh, like or, or even rulemaking around net neutrality and that kind of thing that I wasn't shocked. And I don't see anything egregious. Nothing in here jumps out at me and other, other than the the vagueness of, of that amendment, frankly, nothing jumps out of me as like, okay, this is a bad idea. This is not, you know, this is going to make things significantly worse. I, I didn't see anything like that. All right. Flip side of that coin. Uh, what did you look at there and say, wow, that's actually really good. That's smart. That's great. Um, the security stuff, uh, you know, as little as it is, uh, you know, getting getting a little bit of money for some R&D, uh, getting a little bit of money for CISA uh, to increase their operational budget and keep us secure. Uh, like I said, 
you could probably spend a little more there uh, than you are, but you're also spending money elsewhere. I, that was the one thing that I felt like this, this makes sense. This is what you should, you should absolutely be doing this because you're protecting the literal infrastructure of the country there. All right. All, all, all told, uh, we're assuming this will eventually happen. And again, there's a lot of gridlock in, in the house and both the progressives and the moderates are making faces at each other right now about who's going to go first on whatever their priorities are. But it sounds like you're fairly bullish on this, that, that, that this is actually just kind of, you know, maybe it's it's, you know, the, the worst you can say about it is that if it's inefficiently spending money, it's doing it the traditional way. But by and large, it's good. It's good money for good causes. <laughs> I, I guess, uh, you know, my, my, my actual, uh, my gut feeling is like, well, it's not egregiously wasteful, uh, <laughs> relative to other things. I I'm fairly sanguine about the waste that is in here. Uh, I, I always wish for better things. I always wish for something I'm like, oh, that would actually fix the problem. Uh, but at least nothing in here seems like it's going to make things significantly worse. Okay. Hold on then. You, you just walked us down a path I want to explore. Okay. Congratulations, Senator Tom Merritt. Uh, oh, we, we are not only making you a senator, we are now putting uh -huh. you back in time. Uh, we are going to uh, deliberately and artfully uh, conceal what party you are in. So everybody listening can imagine that you are their champion. I'm a wig. We'll, we'll you are, just throw you that are out. a wig, right? Yeah. You are caucusing with the, the those that are really in power and are going to put stuff in there. And they look at you and say, Tom, we're all a bunch of idiots when it comes to this. <laughs> give me the one thing and give me a number on top of it. It's going right in there. Everybody agrees. You're very smart and they are going to push it through no matter what party they're in. What would you put in this bill? Well, I, I would do two things. Uh, I would narrow the crypto definition right off the top. I, I don't think, I don't understand the resistance to that. And I would, uh, I would, take the broadband infrastructure and I would do something relatively cost-free. I would also lose all my lobbying leverage with all of the ISPs as soon as I did this <laughs> and be voted out of office in the next term. But yes. uh, I would pass laws about infrastructure implementation. Okay. Uh, I would, I would, and, and I would have to study it and have my aides uh, come up with a, a bulletproof version of it, but something that makes it easy for you to get access to polls, to get access to uh, uh, nodes and, and be able to run your service into homes and apartment buildings, because that is really the big break on the United States rolling out infrastructure. We It is way too hard for a company to roll out new infrastructure such that big companies like Verizon just stopped putting fiber uh, service out because they're like, you know, even as, as easy as we have it as a big ISP doesn't make sense. Uh, there are a lot of laws that I think you could do that cost you virtually nothing that would encourage more service to be rolled out uh, and and take and I would I would take away these laws that that take entrance out of the market. Uh, that that's what that's where I'd go with that. So you're saying like standards, just, just yeah. making it like if, if, if there's, all there's you so many rules say, that yeah. are like, well, you, you have to call that ISP if you want to put that poll in there, or gotcha. if you want to dig here, this company can veto you because it's their right of, yeah, get rid of all that stuff. So you're saying, I mean, because that, that really is ultimately the stuff that I, I think is way overlooked whenever we talk about you know, internet access or municipal internet versus private internet and blah, 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 blah. That, that, that is the biggest, the biggest problem is 
that we do have this warlord mentality in, in these bizarre deals between the ISPs that first visited the town or the county and anybody else that would like to enter the market. It, it is, it is, it is fairly horrendous. And you're saying that that you declare a, a new era in America where now all of a sudden these first right of way deals are, if not null and void, then weakened. And that opens up competition where things can be a little bit uh, uh, more equitable for people. Yeah. Uh, and the reason you don't get that is it's not a sexy sell. Uh, it's hard to campaign on that. And uh, the ISPs all like it the way it is because it helps them. Uh, and and if I were an ISP, I'd want it to, to, to continue to help me too. I, I entirely get that. Uh, so it's it's hard to get those kinds of changes made. Where they have been made though, you have seen good results. Uh, I also would would not I would would not allow governments to be prevented from from joining in. Uh, the only thing I'd say is if if a government organization wants to provide service to their community, they can't provide it as a monopoly. They have to play by the same rules as everybody else. And the government has to open up access to its lines. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily mean that make it for a private company to do that. But if the government spends tax money uh, to put the lines in, open it up so other competitors can use it. Uh, I other, otherwise, yeah, I, I think just making it easy for entrants to get into the market has worked in a lot of other markets like Korea. So I don't see why it couldn't work here. Unfortunately, Tom, you've just been primaried by Elliot Comcast, whose middle yeah. name is AT&T. So, uh, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> I kind of, I kind of saw that. I saw that coming. Yeah. So unfortunately, uh, he's running really, really well in the polls and he's just dropped a $5 billion ad spend in your state. So, uh, <laughs> we are, we're, we're, we're going I to will retreat into the West like Galadriel. Then. <laughs> All right. Well, we got a couple minutes here. Uh, uh is there anything else uh, that we missed in this bill or, or, or can we pivot to another, uh, we, we always have other, other political interests that we can, that we can talk to you about, uh, but, but, but last call here on the infrastructure bill. Yeah, uh, this this is a fairly I, I wouldn't say uninteresting, but it's a fairly mundane uh, technology bill. Uh, you know that with with the crypto thing aside, everybody agrees that the crypto thing is even needed. It's just the wording. Uh, uh, most of this is is fairly un uncontroversial and 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 like an infrastructure bill, right? Uh, that's what it's supposed yeah. to be. It's supposed to yes. be uncontroversial, boring stuff that we all need. Which is shocking that this happened, <laughs> to be totally honest. With you. It, it, it's shocking that an, uh, an infrastructure bill actually happened, although I shouldn't speak too soon because it is currently being held up. So you never know. This whole thing could indeed still go up in smoke. Tom, uh, uh, you are, of course, also our UK correspondent. Anything happening across the pond that you're interested in? Oh, I should have known you were going to ask me that. Uh, of course. It, it, Afghanistan has driven all of the UK politics off my screens. Uh, that that's all that that I see talking uh, about when I when I read about the UK. Uh, in the BBC is which that. Is, which so is funny because uh, I read a thing in Politico today that that uh, uh, the EU very upset with Joe Biden. Not not a fan of what's happened. No, uh, because they. They don't want the refugees and they're closer to the refugees. And I, <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'm not saying that's the only reason, yes. uh, but that, that's certainly one of the big reasons there. Uh, yeah. If you, if you go to the BBC's UK site, it's a, you know, Kabul evacuation at full pace. Uh, I'm not leaving Kabul without my staff. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's actually uh, quiet times for Boris Johnson right at the moment. Uh, so <laughs> look for look for something to happen now while the spotlight is out that will surface later. It'd be my guess. I mean, that's for Boris Johnson. <laughs> Quiet times in 2021 is kind of a, a big win, 
right? Yeah, it won't last forever. Enjoy. No, no, of course not. I mean, not 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 in these days, but. Yeah, the, the stuff that I was reading, and I put some of it in the in in the first segment that we have here in the show, but uh, you know, it it seems also that you know, and this goes back to you know the turn of the century here, but the Europe's involvement in Afghanistan and then Iraq was very controversial. Uh, they, they it came at a a greater political cost for the leaders of those countries than it did. In America, although it was certainly controversial here, there was at least 9-11 in the backdrop to kind of point to if you want a justification. But, uh, you know, some of the stuff I was reading specifically out of Germany and the UK was like if if there is a sense in America of, well, what was all this for? It is kind of even more pronounced there because they were sort of ancillary and yet they set, they, they stepped up and sent people into in, into an active war zone. Yeah, I, I think there was a little bit of, I don't know if I'd call it national pride, but but there there was some investment in the idea that the UK was the US's number one partner uh, yeah. in this. And and some of that may even be tied to the fact that, you know, the UK, uh, England particularly, uh, was was in the 1700s, uh, you know, one of those big world powers that, that failed in Afghanistan. Uh, that's... <laughs> That's a major part of the backstory of, of Dr. Watson and the Sherlock Holmes uh, mysteries. So I, I think there was a feeling of of possible uh, redemption there that this is not going to fulfill uh, by ending this way. No, no, no. Unfortunately, uh, you know, they got they got a, a double dip at the. Uh, graveyard of empires, Afghanistan. They mm, uh, they got mm. they got they got two looks on either side. Hey, of get, it. guess whose turn it is now? Who's that? Now, but now batting, China. <laughs> Wait, China's going to go into Afghanistan? I mean, I guess China's, that would be- China's already pivoting towards like, oh, we'll we'll bridge and tunnel. Uh, you know, we'll we'll Silk Road right through there. Uh, what do you what do you got? Uh, we got money. Oh, what what yeah. do you need? Yeah, yeah, no, I did read something like that today. Yeah, that they're uh, they're they're reaching out to the Taliban, but I'm <laughs> sure they won't make the same mistakes. Surely, no, no, they're. they're I'm sure they'll mold Afghanistan exactly how they want to. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well that's as good a place as any to leave it. Uh, Tom, uh, of course, the amazing and illustrious Daily Tech News Show each and every day in your ear holes. Anything else that you got, uh, Bruin? Yeah, brand new books out. Uh, if if you like fiction, uh, Project Vera might be right up the alley of some PX3 listeners because it's about a secret organization hidden throughout time that influences world events. All this crazy stuff that happens in politics. Now you know why. It's because of the Barnatuku in their secret valley, <laughs> as described in Project Vera. Uh, get the audiobook at tomsnewbook.com. Let me say this about uh, uh, Project Vera. I listened to the first 10 minutes because you sent it to me pre-production or pre-publishing, and it was exceptional. This is not just a regular audiobook, folks. It's not just somebody reading stuff. And although that that is great, that is good. It's, it's the only way that I read books these days unless I'm forced to uh, use my actual eyes. But mm. this is a production. It's got audio uh, uh, production value. It's got different actors that uh, lend their voices. I was very, very impressed by it. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a hybrid approach. It, it is just using the text of the book, 
but the Serving Worlds folks that produced it uh, added in some effects. They varied the voices. Like you said, we have four different actors uh, reading it. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you liked it. I, I was pretty proud of how it turned out. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Tom. A pleasure as always. You bet. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. The show uh, was edited by me here in Austin, Texas as well. Uh, if you want to go ahead and say thanks to Tom, px3guest.com. Of course, our email is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch stream, which is back, by the way. We're back. We're back in the studio. Uh, px3live.com. Our newsletter is px3newsletter.com. And our podcast is px3podcast.com. It's where you can share this show with anybody that you'd like. Of course, our merch is at politicsmerch.com. Uh, there are one-time method payment ways to support the show. PayPal.me slash payjury is one of them. Uh, PX3 Cash on that Cash app and checks or any other physical mail can be sent to P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. And if you would like to continue our ongoing study of whether or not Venmo money is real, you can test yourself by sending a dollar to justin-young-20. However, the only way that you can get bonus content is by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the show like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Headphones, Neil, Dr. G, the other half of Whiskey Wednesday, Idris, the Government Unfiltered Podcast, 100 Mile Runner, Berkeley, Stephen, Kathy Mack, Zombie Doc, D, really? Methuselah, Honeythuckle, The Gen, Middle-Aged Mike, Dotcom, Junkie, Calamity, Zap, D, Laser, Lord Scale, the Kinsey, Anile the Third, and Gloria Young for King of the New World Order, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Chad, David, Snuffies, Off Route 44, Charles, Olin and Angela, DL, Miranda Janelle, persons familiar with the matter. Robert, Casey, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners. Brad, just another pilot. Frozen Summers, Jay Pink, and Andrew. If you would like your name read at that segment, only one place to go, takepoliticsseriously.com. That's it for us today. Uh, we're going to try and get an Afghanistan person uh, uh, for Friday show. I don't know if it's going to happen. We will do our best. Otherwise, we will still have a great show. We are going to do that um, that that commercial, the old commercial that uh, I teased last time, but then we had all the Cuomo stuff, so that was, and the recall stuff, so that was what it was, but uh, we will get to that old commercial, uh, continue with our attack ads, Seg uh, series, but until then, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio. Politics. Politics. Politics.